calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole for Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gage with a shot! Welcome back to our demo talk. This is Jimmy Williams. I'm delighted to be joined by my friend today, Roy Kavana, of course, an author of 25 books, 12 on United, an advisor on the recent Busby film, and also, and I must confess, Roy, I didn't know this about you, you wrote the programme notes for the club in the 80s. Yeah, that, that came about with my friendship with Ken Ramsden, who was the uh, United Secretary. Uh, and I wrote in the Tottenham Cup replay of 1980. And then I did I did one in virtually every program for five or six years, uh, including the famous Barcelona game when we when we won three 0 So that, that was that was good. How do you view the eighties in terms of the history of the club? I know for many it's a period of time where they came close a couple of times, especially under Atkinson, but they always kind of ended up empty handed. But how do you view the eighties? That's a good question. I, I've just I've just finished. A book, uh, a book came out last year about United in the 60s, which was a fantastic um, decade. Uh, although that had a, a very, very dodgy start to it, the first two or three years, but then was great. Uh, and then I'm doing one at the minute about United in the 70s, which isn't a great decade, really, except for um, a couple of memorable cup finals in uh, 77, um 75, 76 and 77. Um, but I think the 80s was a very interesting decade because I don't think we the expectations were that high. The excitement was really good under, under Atkinson. Uh, Robson, if Robson played, you never thought you were going to get beat, um, which is surprising that such a great side and great players around him seem to need him to perform. I mean, if you think, starting from the defence, you've got the, uh, McGrath, uh, Moran, got Ray Wilkins, you know, you've got some really great, uh, Frank Stapleton, Norman Whiteside, there's some really great players around it. And, and yet, if Robson wasn't there, a massive difference, which is surprising, really. Um, but we, we just couldn't win that, that title. Um, Winning, winning those first 10 games, of course, they'll never have a better chance, would they, winning 10 on the trot um, and still managing to come forth. So, uh, in the end, I would give Atkinson probably 7, 8 out of 10, but not the full 10. You mentioned the 70s there, of course, a dark period in United's history, but there were some bright moments. I mean, the likes of, yeah. the likes of Willie Morgan, there, there was... Coppel, Garden Hill, Greenhoff, there were some bright moments in that period too. Yes, there were. Um, I'm just writing through that for uh, a publisher down south um, uh, with a friend called Carl Abbott. And it's going to be an in-depth boot about the whole club. Every reserve game, every youth game, every player who played for United um, in, in the 70s 
and and the five managers, which includes Matt Busby, Sir Matt Busby, who came back for about four months. I really like Wilf McGuinness, I have to say that. I, I know Wilf quite well, and I really, really like him. And Wilf was really, really unlucky. We had then three semi-finals, uh, and the third one against Villa, they should definitely have got through to the to the Wembley final, and that could have made a big difference for Wilf. Well, Farrell came and had a, a, an unbelievable first um, four months, five points cleared at Christmas, and then the wheels really came off. Uh, and yet he made two great signings in Martin Buck and, uh, and Ian Story Moore. Um, Ian Moore, of course, um, such a sad scenario there because he, he had such a bad injury uh, and been, you know, able to fulfil his United career. And then Doherty came and he saved us from relegation. But when I was writing about 73-4, I don't think I've ever been de- so depressed about writing about Manchester United as I was then. But the background to it is, of course, Bobby Charlton had retired gracefully. Dennis Law was disgracefully kicked out. Georgie Best went on one of his walkabouts. George, by the way, is still the greatest footballer I've ever seen. Uh, And one that gets forgotten is that Tony Dunn was allowed to go on a free transfer. I used used to know him quite regularly because I had contacts with Bolton at the time. And Tony played five or six years for Bolton Wanderers when he left United. But what did the doc do? He then compounded it by putting our best defender, Martin Buckley, at left fullback for about three or four months. So you that first four months of that season, from August to January, February, disaster. You're writing about it and you think, this can't be as bad as it. Then they signed Jimmy McCallion. Uh, Jerry Daly, who was a great player for United, a great player for United, who was only 18-19 when he broke it at the start of that season. But him and McElroy seemed to really bloom, and Jim McCallion, and he played quite well to the end of the season and really nearly got out of relegation. But then, of course, in the second division, they really flourished, and then we had um, we had 74-5 in the second division. We had 75-6 when it was marvellous, 76-7. Um, we were handicapped there because Martin Buchan had a bad injury for about about 10 games um, but we won the cup and then of course the doc got sacked Sexton then came in and was a very steady man very meticulous man but even with Sexton of course they did come second I think in 1980 and of course the famous Arsenal Cup final so I think like McGuinness and Sexton and Atkinson if and it's a big IF if they'd have won a, you know, a title, that would make the difference. Because don't forget, the first five or six years of Sir Alex was hardly fantastic. And, and a serious question, if Twitter and social media had been out in, ninth, in, in, in Turkey's first six years, I don't think he would have survived. He just wouldn't, would he? I mean, it would have been absolutely... He would have got some right hammerings. You mentioned social media. It's interesting. That's something I actually wanted to get your view on. I suppose in the modern game now, especially for United, one loss is a crisis. How much pressure do you think Twitter and Facebook and all this social media actually puts on Solskjaer and I suppose every other contemporary manager? 100% it's making all the difference. It seriously is. I'll just give you a little indication of it. We just spoke about Sir Alex there, where there were times in those first six years 
where we weren't fantastic. My good friend Pete Mullineux wrote the book Torah Fergie, of course, where he put the, the bed sheet up and said, Your time's up, Alex. We were 1 0 up against Crystal Palace and got beat 2 1 at home. And I bet the crowd wasn't 35,000. And that was just before Crystal, uh, just before we won that third round cup tie against Knott's Forest. And, you, you know, would he have survived under that? Going back to Samak time, I can recall um, I started watching United when I was set in 1955. Um, but I can remember the, uh, the times up to Munich. I saw the Busby Babes play. I, I, was, I was there for their last home game, which was against Ipswich Town in the FA Cup um, the week before the famous Arsenal game, which get talked about a lot. And, and of course, I was there the years after Munich. So until Dennis Lawson died, United were going nowhere. Uh, they had an incredible 58-9 season where they came runners-up. And I, I, how they did that, we don't know. But 59 60 60-61, We're talking 12-15. I went to Everton in December 61. And it was chucking it down. No expectation. We were 5-0 down at half-time. 5-0 down at half-time. A good Irish wing after Jimmy Nicholson was playing. He was only 17 or 18. But, you know, would, would Samak would have come under the same scrutiny if you had your Twitter and your Facebook? So you can't disregard that at all. The impact of social media on one match is incredible. And you look, you look at Ollie's um, career as manager at United since the 5-0 win against Cardiff. You had that real upward surge from the Cardiff game right through to um, Paris Saint-Germain. Winning 3-2 in Paris in the last minute, wow, after the display at Old Trafford when we were, we were poor, really. Um, and then, after that, it went in a downward spiral. The last two games of the season, Huddersfield Town away, drawing, Cardiff at home getting beat, and the performances are really, really poor. And then, this time last year, his first swap, but from really the start of the season through to... You would say the Burnley defeat when I think we were about 10th and that was mid-January uh, and then of course Bruno came and then wow the upward spiral goes again so at the minute I think this is uh, I don't think it should be but I think because of social media I think this period between now and say Christmas is absolutely vital for Ollie because if this continues as a downward spiral you really would say, hang on, he's been up, he's been down, he's been up, he's been down. Pochettino's still in the in the wings. You wouldn't be surprised. But, of course, if they stabilise and move forward and they're in the top four, um, you know, still potentially got this um, football league cup, Carabao Cup. And then, of course, the European draws later this week, isn't it? So, social media carrying a massive, complete... Um, regard of what does go on. I couldn't agree more. I want to ask you about the weekend's game. What was your reaction to that result and what do you think we learned? I didn't think we learned much positive, to be honest, but uh, I mean, the match started 10 minutes when each of the individual players were playing individually quite well and then suddenly Brighton seemed to take a hold after 20 minutes, uh, hit the post a couple of times and you know, and then obviously they got the penalty. And, you know, at our time, 
just say, just yeah, up to half time, you're thinking, well, this is not great. We got we got a lovely goal back, and and again, you thought we we're going to be on the on the ascendancy, but it was Brighton who seemed to come on the ascendancy. Um, so and then of course it's the last. Well, you, you've got to say the last 15 minutes, counting the 10 minutes uh, injury, but it wasn't just injury; it was VAR time as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, we're quite incredible. The more gold down in folklore, really, from the uh, 85th minute officially to the 100th minute unofficially. Um, we did deserve to win, and, and I was just saying it at, at the point where we were winning 2-1, and the ball's on the right-hand side, and I thought, you know, you know Brighton deserve a draw, and of course the cross comes over and it's 2-2. But the number of goals that are appearing against United from copies from either the right side or the left side is incredible. I mean, both Seville goal uh, would, would come from, from those positions, didn't they? Um, at Crystal Palace the other week, again, the same position. And there seems to be a lack of real... I, won't, I don't want to use the word desire, but there seems to be a real lack of leadership of somebody grabbing all this one and saying, hey, come on, while the game's going on. Now, you could, I know you referred to it in one of the questions, you could say, well, should the manager be doing it? I would also say with Solskjaer, one of the worrying things I have, I think he's got too many coaches alongside him. I mean, you, you, you lose count of who he's got there, don't you? He's got Mickey Phelan, he's got Carrick, and he's got, he's got at least another two. <laughs> and yet, if Oliver doesn't go to the top line, surely somebody should be out there at, at any one time. I think in that game you mentioned the defensive frailties. I think in that game we saw the worst and the best of United. We also saw what they can do on the counter when Bruno made that pass, the quality of Rashford. Offensively, yeah. our quality is not in doubt. And last night we've seen that the journalists and a number of media outlets have broke that United will come back in for Sancho this week. They state the club are confident of getting the deal done. I want to ask you first of all, do you think United will get the Sancho deal done? And to develop that further, given the defensive frailties that we've just highlighted, do you think it's imperative that he comes? The answer to your last question, or last part of the question, is no. I don't really know that much about Sanchez, and I would have, I would have thought the keyboard warriors who are doing Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that type of thing, it'd be very interesting how many times they've really seen him in, in home matches, away matches, good teams and bad teams. I'm sure he's a very good good player, but is he any better than Greenwood, for example? He's probably another year, 18 months older than Greenwood. What I would say at this minute, I don't know who the man is. That's the problem. United absolutely need a massively strong centre-back to go alongside, assumedly, Maguire. And that centre-back has to be either like Bruce or Pallister, has to be like Stam, has to be like Rio or Vidic, has to be like Martin Buckham, who we were both talking about recently. You need to know, is Maguire going to be the dominant man, so he needs somebody playing off him? Or do we need a dominant man who Maguire will play off? Now, I'm not good enough to know which of those we need, but there's enough people around at United Children. Right, which, you know, so which one do you identify? Is it the absolute dominant centre who goes for everything and wins everything, and Maguire is here? Or are we leaving Maguire to do that, and we've got somebody who's quick, 
who is going to be behind Maguire. So there's two different centre backs there, and I think that person, whoever that is, is far far more vital than Sancho. And I'll give you another idea here: the three that we've got now, you could say, and people may disagree with this, I'm sure, but you could say a bid for Josh King at Bournemouth, that type of player who could play. Anytime as a substitute, he wouldn't spit his dummy out if he was a substitute. He could come on at any time in the game after five minutes or 85 minutes, and you know he would do a decent job. But you had that centre back. I think that would be a better way of spending your 100 or 90 million pounds. Because if Sancho does come at that type of thing, he has to be Ronaldo, Messi. He has to be a man who's going to come into the team the following week, demand the ball, demand the shirt, and win games from losing positions, drawing positions, and obviously explode when we're in winning positions. You can't, you know, you can't say, oh, he's only young and he'll be okay in 18 months' time. If you're spending that type of money, particularly with the financial restrictions with COVID and all that type of thing on, he has to be in the Ronaldo messy uh, type of player. I would definitely go for that centre-back, but I'm not sure which one you want. You know, the forceful or the Martin Buchan type um, and another forward. But I would also buy another full-back as well. Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. We mentioned Ollie's perceived lack of enthusiasm throughout the Brighton game off-air. Now, for me, I don't have a massive problem with that. I think... If the manager is on the touchline, scream his head off too much, I think after a while it loses weight. But for the purpose of the podcast, I played devil's advocate. What would you say to the suggestion that the manager sets the tone in order for him to, I suppose, ask for urgency? Should he not express it himself? Yes, I think the manager does set the tone. You could go back to the days with Samat, and again, pre-Twitter and pre-Facebook. Samat, I don't remember ever standing on the touchline. But that was a different era. That was 60 years ago. I understand that. Um, but yes, I think um, when there's a period or a point in the game that Solskjaer or whoever feels this isn't right, somebody has to go to that touchline. Somebody has to go to that touchline and, and shout the order. A great side wouldn't need it, but we're not a great side at the minute. And somebody needs to show that urgency. So I think he is letting himself down slightly there. But if that's his style, fine. But you would say, you would say, okay, well, uh, make feeling you've got to do it. Feeling you've got to do it. Whoever else we've got there, I mean, probably got another group whose names escape me now. But they, you know, somebody should be there, you know, really getting that point out. Although for, for footballers who are on 100, 200, 300,000 pounds a week, I'm sorry to bring politics into this, but bear in mind that a prime minister of a country who has got, of whichever party, has got, of any country, is on about 150,000 a year. I think they should themselves take more responsibility than just putting it back onto the manager. I couldn't agree more. I think the players have to show responsibility, and I agree with what you touched on earlier in the sense that I think this team maybe lacks leaders. I think we have Bruno, we have Maguire. After that, I, I can't think of too many leaders. No, no. 
Maguire's leadership qualities uh, are that his perceived leadership qualities, the ones that you see, have been have been disappointing. I mean, Wan Bissaka's not a leader, Shaw's not a leader, Linderhoff's not a leader, um, Martial's not a leader, Rashford's not a leader. I'm sure they all feel and want to do well. I'm not disregarding that. But, you know, these men are getting enormous amounts of money. Um, and, and I do feel that, that that leader, imagine Keane, we keep going back to Keane, don't we? Because there was the explosive, uh, but not just explosive, the guy who did it himself at every time. You know, but they're, they're few and far between. A lot of, you, look at, you look at Tottenham's side, and you look at others around, and there's not many now, is there? No. You look at yesterday was I mean, not much leadership there you know so again um, they, they are few and far between but what people would just say about just jumping back a little bit and how things can change if you think when we got beat 2-0 with Burnley at the, towards the end of, of January we were about 10th and we were dying there was no other word to describe it in many ways sadly the manager deserved sacking that night one signing made all the difference Bruno made all the difference. And this centre-back, because whether you sign Sancho or not, you can have who you want on that right. You put Ronaldo back on that team, perhaps. But if the defence continues to play as they are, you're going to have to win a lot of games 4-3, aren't you? So I would rather say we've got three top class, three as good as many, many other sides in the world forwards at the minute. We've got them. We need to make that back door shut because if that back door shut, you're not going to um, you're not going to let a, a goal in, in the game. You, you, you've got a good chance one of them three or Bruno is going to get you one goal in the match. Whereas at the minute with the back line you've got, you're automatically thinking you're going to have to score two to start with to win. And at, at times, if the other side gets a goal, you're talking a three. So I think Sancho is a luxury signing and one that. Is not top of our priority, um, but the way we're doing transfer business is is quite moving. We haven't spoke about the, the, the Dutch lad, of course. Now we still paid forty million pounds for him allegedly, and that's still a lot of money. And again, you think, well, you bought him. Surely we've not bought him for two years down the line. You know what we're doing there. The Pogba question comes back. Now Pogba was at United as a junior and and was quite outstanding, really. Uh, then because we did everything and everything he left and had a great career a really good career at Juventus but he had Perlo playing for him and he had other fine players playing for him he's come back to United except for perhaps the first month because he was outstanding in that first um, you know six or eight weeks and he got hurt in a European game towards the end of September and he hasn't really commanded game um, I don't think he still is he may still be but he was the world's most expensive player and we can criticise and we should criticise the game because what they've done with their uh, money laundering of United is quite quite unbelievable but yet we have bought the most expensive player in the world at the time we've still got the most expensive defender at the time and there has been a lot of money spent on transfers and uh, what they've done with the other money and put it in the back pocket instead of spending it again is a disgrace um, but I still feel that the, the biggest issue today is centre-back and one great signing 
send them on a really fantastic run. You touched on Paul Pogba there, and I wanted to ask you about his performance the weekend. He failed to create a chance. He failed to produce a shot, make a tackle, or an interception. Now, to me, I think people are probably fed up with me saying it. I'd probably repeat myself at this point. I've seen very little to suggest to me that Paul Pogba is a 90 million player. I think he's lazy in possession at times. I think he, I think he fails to do the basics. We've heard all the excuses. He needs to play on the left of a diamond. He needs a ball playing centre-back. He needs a defensive midfielder. We brought in Matic. How do you think we solved the enigma that is Paul Pogba? Well, I think at the minute, if you're picking your best team um, for, say, the Tottenham game now, your best team would be Matic in the olden role. Bruno forward and Van der Beek in between. Those would be your three midfielders. Pogba would not get in the team on form at the minute. And Van der Beek has to get in above him at this minute. The problem is then, you're asking to solve the problem, you're taking them one of the world's most expensive players out of your team. Uh, the transfer market ends in a week's time. Nobody's going to come in with anything like any money realistically for him. In a way, you've been forced to, sh- you've got to play. Um, and, and I think it's a bad time to, to ask that question, if you understand what I mean. That we've got a very short, truncated pre season, I understand that. Um, but you had him last year, and even last year in our successful part when Bruno came, I thought he played quite well. He played 7 out of 10. But he is that world's, one of the world's most expensive players. He has to be playing 9 out of 10. And, then, you know, Bruno was the one who was doing that every game. And Pogba wasn't. Um, it, it, it's really an enigma. I think the time is too late, I think, now in this transfer thing. But I think the time is cut where he has had his, he has had his time with us now. He's had all the chances. And unless he's carrying an injury and playing under preference or whatever, if that against Crystal Palace and against Brighton was the real Paul Pogba, well, he doesn't deserve a place in the first 11. I agree, and I would love to be proved wrong. I would love for him to prove all his critics wrong, but I'm not sure at this point will we see that. He's had a lot of chances to do that. I'd like to conclude, because I'm conscious you have a meeting to attend, I'd like to conclude by asking some of the fan questions, if that's all right. This one comes in from Luca on Instagram. He wants to ask what was Matt Busby like? Obviously I know you you interviewed Matt in eighty three. Was that your only experience of work with Matt or were there others? No, no, I, I had the real genuine pleasure of uh, interviewing him in his office at Old Trafford for a good half an hour, forty minutes. And then I met him another three or four times because the pair of us were on William Morgan's testimonial committee. Um and of course, you know, going back to the fact that I first saw United in 1954-55 when I was 7 or 8, can you imagine 20, 25 years after that, actually sat in front of him, just me and him in a room? Okay. Hey, Roy, Roy, how are you doing, Roy? Are you okay? My late father would probably give me a clip round the ear hole and say, stop telling a lie, because, you know, I, find it, I found him genuinely the most genuine man you could possibly meet. And he had one trait, which is quite remarkable. He never, ever forgot your name. For example, the first time I met him, uh, we arranged to have this meeting. He sent me a beautiful letter 
setting up what time to go and meet him at Old Trafford. Uh, I was in his company for about 40 minutes. The interview lasts for about 30 minutes, and it is on YouTube somewhere, the interview. Um, and then it was about six months after that I met him again. And as I say, both of us were on William Morgan's testimonial committee. Matt, in a much uh, more obvious reason than I was, but we went. And we had to meet at a hotel in Altrincham called the Crest of Cole. And I remember walking into this room, and I looked around about 20 people, and I recognised quite a lot of them, because Willie had a lot of quite famous people on that committee, and I was probably the least famous. And Matt Busby walked in, and he and walked across, and I stood, Billy Normates, in the corner, and he genuinely... Six months after me, said, Hi Roy, how are you doing? And I mean, you got a uh, fine time, you know. <laughs> I mean, I had so many stories then about. I had one cracking story once. You know, we're talking about Solskjaer now, we're talking about the team spirit. I remember w- one time when the team got really moving in the mid 60s, when you had uh, from the defence, you had, you had uh, the two Irish lads, Shay Brennan and Tony Dunn, but you had Bill Folk and Draft. Who didn't say much, Bill, but he looked. He had a stern look. And Paddy Crowder was like, like, you know, he was flying all over. Norman Stiles, who was very ferocious. Now, he was the man that you'd need today. Dennis Law, wow, one of the greatest footballers ever. George, of course. Bobby Charles. David Earl, a great football. We had a great team. And I can remember one of them, I think it was Paddy saying, you know, you, you dread going into the dressing room at half time, getting beat 2 0, because you think, how much he'd let him down. Um, because one of his other traits was, and this is another sign of greatness, was that if it was a player's wife's birthday or their child or someone had been in the hospital, there would always be a bunch of flowers and a card sent. You know, little things like that. I don't care who you are. Little things like that you remember about that person, what they're doing for you and for your own, and you're bound to do that bit He was an absolutely incredible man, um, and his records there will never be, uh, you know, better, really. Sir Alec, obviously, in a way, did better over a longer time, but what Busby did, if you go back to the 45 and look at the fact that he created three world-class sides into the 48, the 56, uh, and, and like the 60, 68 side. Well, I think, you know, the 68 side that won the European Cup, if he came back in years to the Benfica match when he won 5-1, I still think that was one of the United's greatest ever teams. Because that night in Lisbon, he had Harry Gregg in his prime. He had Jay, Tony, Pat, Billy, Robbie, John Connolly, a great winger. Bobby Chapman in his right position, inside right. David Urge, centre forward and George Best. That was as great a side as I see it on a par nearly with the Busby Babes. And speaking of the Busby Babes, I love the t-shirt. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the man himself. The man um, himself. Uh, you know, uh, the, Duncan, the Duncan Edwards Foundation will be quite happy if you tweet about this. <laughs> you mentioned Willie Morgan. He described to me Busby as an exceptional, lovely human being as a quiet man, someone who never raised his voice and someone who never cursed, which I think is remarkable as, as a manager working in football to never curse. And he also said people never cursed in front of him, which I think is indicative of the respect he commanded. Well, I, hopefully what I've just said about that aura that he had around him, 
but it's all right people having an aura around them but if they don't interact with other people you know it, it becomes but matt busby did interact he wouldn't ignore you or pass you um you know he, he had that aura and there's not many ever in the world who in another world he'd have made a very good pulp actually final question and i want to thank you for your time it's been an absolute pleasure i think i have a feeling of the answer you would give for this but what's your favorite era remember every United game from about 1955 to about 1968 but if you just said to, if you say to me how did what was the score against Coventry in 2004 I would have no idea so my I would go a 10 year era not a full decade I would go 1956 to 1966 was my favourite time Roy it's been an absolute pleasure I bow to your knowledge I enjoy your work I appreciate your time Writing good. I wish it was your age now and had that skill then. You've got a great future. Lovely speaking. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona. I don't believe it. Well left by York. Fit by Cole. Back to 